All right, so everybody knows, if you were here last week, we are starting a series on the book of Daniel. And I must say that I was taken a bit uh, aback by such a, such a series. Um, some of you know Rabbi Glebe is on sabbatical right now. So in him going on sabbatical, he's sitting and thinking, well, okay, what am I going to have the congregation with some of the more less experienced people uh, in giving a message? What are we going to do? What are we going to go through? The book of Daniel. Now, if you know the book of Daniel... <laughs> you know this is one of the most challenging books in all of Scripture. So Rabbi Glebe, I guess, really loves to challenge us. So let's see how this goes, and we'll let him know. Um, So like I said, um, also this is my first official sermon, uh, done on short notice, though, so do bear with me and please pray for me. Um, I was initially very intimidated by the idea of doing a sermon on the book of Daniel. If you know Daniel, uh, there's a lot of esoteric visions, prophecy, beasts, illustrations of the King Moshiach, the end times. It's wild stuff, right? So frankly, I'm still a bit intimidated by the whole book and by doing a sermon. But honestly, I will say, though, that we, even though we're in for a challenging ride, uh, I really am moved by the practical value that the book of Daniel has to offer. Uh, as I'm going through it, and I can see now why Rabbi Glebe did choose, uh, did choose the book of Daniel to be a good series to start out with for us. Because uh, we know that the God of Israel is the one true God who reigns over the universe, right? In our time and place in history, we know this. But this was not yet fully understood, especially at this time period. It's said that God gave the king of Judah and Jerusalem over to the Babylonians, So what are they thinking? What is their impression? Are people lived with uncertainty as to whether or not God had abandoned them in their exile? But Daniel's story makes it very clear who God is, his reign over all the earth, and that we can depend upon him even in a foreign land that does not acknowledge him. So a little review from last week. Daniel and his friends, they are youth of Judean nobility. They are the cream of the crop of our people at the time. Although they're not necessarily captives, they are not necessarily being held on their own will, okay? As far as captivity goes, this really isn't so bad, right? I mean, food and drink from the king's table, free education, scholarships, job training, pretty sweet deal. I think we all wouldn't mind that, right? Except for the fact that these were pagan worshipers that were giving them all these benefits, eating food that was sacrificed to pagan gods, teaching pagan philosophy. So not so good. Not really the influence you want to get involved in. But Daniel and his friends took a stand for God, as Rabbi Glebe talked about last week. When offered meat from the king's table, they said, no, give me vegetables instead. All right, not only was this a bold stand for God, but then Daniel claimed that a miracle would occur, in that they would would appear healthier, from only eating vegetables rather than engaging in the consumption of meat. Now, I couldn't help but wonder last week. I'm thinking, why is it so surprising that Daniel and his friends would appear healthier eating a vegetarian diet rather than those who were eating slabs of meat and guzzling goblets of wine? Personally, most vegetarians that I know appear much healthier than my fellow carnivores, right? All right, maybe we disagree with that, but I know some pretty in-shape vegetarians. Uh, and I, and, and 
but based on the situation, it seems, though, that like, they were pretty much unprepared for a vegetarian option uh, in this Babylonian setting. It actually reminds me of um, a situation Rachel and I were in uh, at the Messianic Leadership Roundtable, where, and we keep a, a more strict kosher diet, only kosher meat, and they pull out these big steaks for everybody. Everyone's ready to chow down. And we say, oh, well, we prefer a vegetarian option. They look at us like, we have a potato. So they literally pull out a sliced potato and some steamed vegetables. Kind of reminded me of the whole Daniel situation, okay? If they're giving you a plate of vegetables, everybody else is eating the meat. That was not a prepared, healthy, nourishing option. I will say, though, that I did give in to temptation. I decided to go against my convictions, and I ate the meat. Rachel ate the vegetables, and I will say I was punished for it. I ate a very big slab of poor-quality meat, and uh, I felt it later. So, God does hold us to our convictions. So Daniel, with complete confidence, knew that if he chose to honor Adonai, he would be blessed and not only be nourished, but miraculously more nourished than the others, eating only vegetables. So right off the bat, we see God is at work providing miracles. All right? Let's think about this. These are miracles that happen, documented in our scriptures. This is not just story. For those who honor his name. And we know that we can place our trust in God, even in a pagan society, because God is in charge of not just Egypt, not the Sea of Reeds, not just Israel, not just America, but he is the God in charge of the entire world. So let's dive into chapter 2, shall we? Page 799 in your text. And follow along with me as we go through some of the verses. So the focus of this chapter is a dream that happened. So let's take a look. Verses 1 through 3, starting at page 799. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. His spirit was troubled and sleep escaped him. So the king issued an order to summon the magicians, the astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans in order to explain to the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand that dream. Excuse me. So first, I just have to uh, applaud and tip my hat to the translators of the TLV for the use of the phrase, I dreamed a dream. I'm not familiar enough with the Hebrew, but it would appear here that we have the usage of a verb that literally does mean to dream. And they felt it best to use this translation, despite the fact that I can't help but continue to hear Fontaine from Les Miserables singing the song, anybody? I dreamed a dream. Rachel loves it. Well, so, he's dreaming some dreams, one that troubled him so much that he was losing sleep over it. Since this was only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he was not a well-established king. Okay, he had not earned his reputation yet, which would make a man nervous about his rule and what's going to happen, right? So he's clearly troubled by this. Naturally, he called in all the masters of the various pagan arts to interpret, and they go through the typical dream interpretation routine. You know, oh, tell me what, you, what is the dream, and they ask for the details of the dream. To which the king replies in verse 5, the king answered the Chaldeans saying, I firmly decree, if you do not make the dream and its meaning known to me, you will be torn from limb, limb from limb and your house is reduced to rubble. But if you tell the dream and its meaning, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and its meaning. Okay, serious curveball here. This is not how dream interpretation is supposed to go. 
Okay? You, no, you, you, you tell me what you dreamed about. So obviously the sorcerers, they very awkwardly and nervously reply, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will declare the interpretation. All right? This is how dream interpretation is supposed to go. But let's consider the importance of dream interpretation. It was first and still is to this day firmly believed that dreams can be a prophecy of what is to come. People put so much stock on what their dreams are telling them. It can consume a person, take over every aspect of their life and what they pursue. Now imagine you're a king, and your dreams could be prophecy that affects your entire kingdom. You will want to know what it means. So understand that because of this, King Nebuchadnezzar is a bit unstable, not knowing what is going to happen. So he's making unreasonable demands. Dream interpretation, I don't know if some of you guys may know this, psychic readings... Uh, this is a whole art form that is not spiritual at all. There are websites you can go. I was just looking the other day. You can go online, dreamdictionary.com. There's how-to books on how to dream. You can lo- and also, there you, can lo- you can use leading words, ask leading questions, or just consult the manual when doing this. They are called mentalist techniques or hot and cold reading. Maybe you guys have seen the show Crossing Over with John Edward. So there's literally an entire way that you can draw out, oh, well, okay, a statue. Um, well, that means uh, power and, and gold, right? And you, you can basically fool somebody through leading questions into thinking that you're suddenly a psychic. So this is why, and it's not the answer the king is looking for. He's unstable, he wants answers, and he will dispose of anyone who fails him in doing this. So let's take a look at verse 10. Because King Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to avoid all the John Edwards who use parlor tricks to appear to be spiritually powerful. He wants the real deal. But who can accomplish this? Who can not only say what the dream is, but then interpret it? Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, saying, There is no man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great king, however great or mighty, has ever asked such a thing from any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. What the king asks is too difficult. There is no one who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Okay? Again, not what the king wanted to hear. So he decrees, all right, well then I'll just slaughter all of you then if you can't do what I want. Meanwhile, Dan and his friends get the news that they will be included in the mass killings. When reading the book, it often uses the word promotion. At the end of this, you'll see Daniel gets a promotion. So I'm imagining... This scenario, kind of like from Office Space, where the guy comes up to Dan. Yeah, hi, Dan. So uh, the guy's up in sorcery. They couldn't get the job done. Yeah, so you're all going to be terminated. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What the heck, right? I mean, they didn't even give Daniel a crack at it. Well, just, you know, Daniel and his friends, they're kind of keeping their distance from the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, all of these various unsavory characters. But now they're getting slaughtered for it. But Daniel knows that the power of the God of Abraham, he knows that Adonai is greater than any man or supernatural power that exists. And that where all others fail, God succeeds. So what does he do? He gets the group together and they pray. Simple as that. They pray, though, with an earnest heart, begging for mercy. And the dream is revealed to Daniel. 
God is ready to reveal his will to those who come to him with a pure heart. And we see this. Ready to stand boldly in front of those who don't believe and declare his glory. Especially when one responds as Daniel does. His prayer says, after after he's given the dream, it says in verse 19 through 23, During the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and answered, saying, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and installs kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you gave me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You revealed to us the word of the king. I don't know how many of us have formulated such a beautiful prayer in response to God answering our prayers, but I love this. This is such a beautiful example. The main reason why, I would say, is because these are words of exaltation, not just gratitude, not just thank you, Lord, thank you. Oh, I'm so grateful. Exaltation, lifting God up to the place that he belongs, declaring who he is and his place in this earth and in heaven. The prayer reminds us that God is in control of all things, reminds us that God gives us what we need when we need it, and the prayer also reminds us that God uses us as his messengers for the non-believer. So Daniel makes the arrangements to go before the king. Now, I don't know if many of us today would have the chutzpah to burst into our boss's office and proclaim, I'm bringing you a message from God. We might seem a little bit mishugana, okay? But Daniel knows with all confidence that he does, not, yet he does have such a message from God. But before getting into that, Daniel doesn't just impress the king with his vision. He says in verse 27 through 30, Daniel answered the king, The mystery about which the king inquired is such that neither wise men, astrologers, magicians, or sorcerers can disclose it to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar the things that will happen in the latter days. The dream and the visions that went through your head as you lay on your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay on your bed came thoughts about what will come to pass in the future. The revealer of mysteries has made known to you what is going to happen. But as for me, this mystery is not revealed to me because I possess more wisdom than any other living person but in order that the king may know the interpretation and understand the thoughts of your heart. So Daniel, like a true man of God, first things first, king, before we go any further, let's make it very clear who is the source of this miraculous work. It's not one of your people, it's not one of your deities, but it is the God of heaven. And notice that phrase, too. It is somewhat unique, actually, to the book of Daniel, the phrase, the God of heaven. And that, and that is Daniel speaking their language. For people that worship the stars, the cosmos, the heavens, to declare God in such a way that was fitting to show his power over all of that, and all of, that they, that, all of which that they falsely worshipped. Now let's also notice and not disregard that Daniel could have been very tempted here to take a bit of claim for this miracle. I mean, by Daniel's free will, he, do, he chose to respond, right? I mean... You know, God gave him the vision, but Daniel didn't have to respond. I mean, God chose Daniel to receive this dream, so that must say something about Daniel's abilities, right? No, 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 no. Daniel makes this point very clear in verse 30. 
Daniel is no greater than any other man, and all glory be to the God of heaven for this one. So Daniel proceeds to tell of the dream. Let's take a look at verses 31 through 35. You looked, O king, and behold, there before you stood a huge statue, an enormous and dazzling image, whose appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was of pure gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly iron and partly clay. While you were watching, a stone that was cut out, but not by hands, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from summer threshing floors that the wind blows away. Not a trace of them could be found. Then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, quite the image, right? Some of you may have seen pictures of what we feel the statue may have looked like. And actually, I, if I could cue the picture here. All right, that is mighty. I love the beard on that, too. So, Daniel goes on to interpret the dream. He explains the meaning that each of the different elements of the statue represent the current kingdom and empire and all the empires that are to come. And based on the fact that we have now lived this history, we can theorize as to who these kingdoms were. All right? So, we have the most current Babylonian empire, which was the most impressive, and Daniel said very clearly that is the gold. We have following empires that are inferior. Next comes the uh, Medo-Persian empire. That's the silver. We have the bronze, the belly and the thighs of brass of the Greek empire. And then the legs of iron, the Roman empire. The iron portion, though, it says in verse 40, and this would seem accurate in describing the Roman empire, not as glorious, but extremely strong. The bottom portion is described in verse 41 through 43. Where do we have it? Excuse me. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly potter's clay and partly iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. It will have some of the strength of the iron, you saw, for you saw the iron mixed with clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw iron mixed with clay, people will mix with one another, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. This is best described as the remnant, the Papel Rome, the remnant of the Roman Empire, ultimately transitioning into our modern-day world, which with, people have theorized about the different meanings. It's mainly seen as the modern nations of Europe, the European Union, uh, but more so just the various empires that are kind of scattered, little mini-empires I think we see all throughout the world. So let's just quickly acknowledge that this book was written over 2,000 years ago. When we consider history and the empires that came after the Babylonians and their descriptions, Daniel's dream is pretty legit, right? We saw all these empires come afterwards and almost in the same fashion that is described in the book of Daniel. I just want to make sure we are acknowledging what an accurate and amazing prophetic vision this was, how it played out in our history. But what about the stone, though, that was smashed? What about the stone that smashed the statue? Let's read verse 44 through 45. Now in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. 
nor will this kingdom be left to another people. It will crush and bring to an end all of these kingdoms, but it will endure forever. For just as you saw a stone cut out of a mountain, yet not by hands, crush the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. Now the dream is certain, and its interpretation, trustworthy. What a way to end it, right? I wish I could say that after I like make a declaration. What I have said is certain, and its interpretation, trustworthy. I like that. So, God's kingdom is not a kingdom made by man. As it says, it was not made by hands. And this kingdom will smash this statue. All that man has done to create such, such magnificent work of history in creating empires will ultimately be destroyed. The dream is past, present, and future in application for us. Past in terms of all the previous empires that have come. Present in terms of the, empire, the various empires we're seeing today. And future in terms of God's empire, God's kingdom that is to come. But the Babylonian Empire begins a long series of empire rule on earth, each subsequent one hoping to be greater than the next and yet being weaker. And even though today we don't see an empire ruling with an iron fist as it was in the past, we seemingly live in an age of enlightenment and cooperation with no monarchy dominating the world. It still feels like at any moment, though, right, under the right circumstances, an empire could arise and dominate the entire world, What did we see with World War II and with Hitler? The current Chinese empire, potentially. America certainly has an empire mentality, right? But yet we all get along and are simultaneously doing our own thing. All of this, all of history, all the great empires in our modern day scattered mini-empires that are representative of the clay at the bottom and iron, these are all rubbish to God. He is to be acknowledged as greater than all of these. How many people get to tell a king, this is what I'm wondering, your kingdom and all preceding kingdoms will be destroyed? And then get a big thank you and a promotion out of it. And literally Daniel tells him, your your kingdom will be destroyed and you will be done forever. Oh, thank you, thank you, Daniel. Here's a promotion. This does not seem normal, right? But it's because he was so moved, the king Nebuchadnezzar was so moved by the revealing And that he knows something powerful had occurred. And all he can do is acknowledge the greatness of what had happened. Verse 47. It says, in response to the king, in response, the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries. For you were were able to reveal this secret. You see that he acknowledges Adonai, But at the same time, he was kind of also offering Daniel a form of worship, right? Just before, he was bowing, he falls on the floor, on his face to pay homage to Daniel. This king Nebuchadnezzar and men like him, I feel they're basically ready to bow down and worship anything that services him at the moment. Whatever deity makes him the best offer, he will serve. Reminds me of the scene, uh, the movie The Mummy, maybe you've seen it. Uh, the guy, Benny, he's the not-so-pleasant uh, character, and he's, he comes face-to-face with the mummy, and he's backing away, he's, and he pulls out the cross, and he's praying, and he's praying. And then he pulls out basically like ten different necklaces of various deities, pulling one after another, praying, praying, okay, will this one work, will this one work, will this one work? 
this is the mentality of people like this. They, wh what will serve them? Okay, well, who do we pray to now? Who will deliver us from what is happening? It was in the movie uh, uh, Beowulf, too, where they say, well, should we, should we also pray to the, the new Greek god, uh, Christ Jesus? No, we do not respond just based on who serves us at the right time. Okay? Our God may be greater than all other supernatural possibilities that exist. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, that even though any other deities do exist, that God is greater than all of them. But he is more than just a God who has power over this world, who reigns over all the kingdoms on earth that have ruled. He is a God who has set aside a kingdom to come that is not of this world. And we are called to be just that, not of this world, to act in a way that is set apart as he sets apart those who, like Daniel, are faithful to him. With a God that is so amazing, doing miracles and wonders, a God who is so loving, desiring for us to dwell forever in his kingdom, in fellowship with him, giving us the Moshiach, Messiah, Yeshua, to atone for our sins so that all of this can happen, how can we not be bold like Daniel? How can we not come before kings and declare God? Look at what we know about him. Look at what our scriptures tell us. Many of us have seen this in our own lives. Daniel was given an opportunity to make God's glory known. And he also made sure to give God all the glory. To put the focus completely on God and take no credit for the work that was done. This took a large amount of courage to stand up for God to a king who does not believe. It took a large amount of integrity to keep God as the focus of what happened. It also took a large amount of confidence to know that God would respond. So my prayer is this, that we as a community will be moved by this incredible story of courage, integrity, and confidence. That we would be willing to stand in front of kings knowing that our God is truly greater than any other deity, any other supernatural idea, and any king or any empire that will walk the face of this earth or exist in the supernatural realm. So let's close with a word of prayer. God, I thank you for just this message. I thank you for the book of Daniel. I thank you for the testimony of his life and what it offers to us. God, as, as challenging and as, as complicated as this book is, let us just take from it this uh, just awesome example to stand boldly in front of anybody who would claim that our God is not the God of this universe. God, just motivate us to a place of, of boldness. Motivate us to have the same courage and the integrity that Daniel had, to hold fast to our convictions, and to just be ready, God, for any situation. For whatever is to come, we don't know, God. We live in a relatively peaceful time. But may we, just, may we be ready for whatever there is in this world to come uh, that this world is going to present to us and challenge us with. And may we just stay bold and confident knowing that there is a world to come and a true rest and a true Shabbat in your kingdom, God. So we thank you and we praise you. And I pray these things, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach.